This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. She was a political appointee in the Obama administration, serving as a special assistant in the Office of Land and Emergency Management at the EPA. And while there, she made note of a very important practice. You know, the administrative staff, the HR staff, the IT support, the sort of um, support community primarily was black and brown women. Um, And everybody who did policy uh, or sort of the substantive work were, were white. Coming up in this episode of Colors. So you hear that voice every week on the show. Well, you're not just going to hear that voice doing the same old thing which is This Is Colors, and coming up in our next edition, you're going to hear her talking about this. It's so simple, mm-hmm. and, and people don't consider that when it comes to issues of, of race, discrimination, marginalization, they're the big things they think about. They think of violence, they think of oppression, they think of inequity, but I don't think most people think of loneliness. That's the incomparable Hillary Howard. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Justice! Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And I'm Hillary Howard. I'm a nice Jewish girl from New York. <laughs> and this is Colors. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And that voice, in case you haven't figured it out yet, is the same voice that says this. You're listening to Colors. Every show, she does those liners that essentially defines our show. And I, I did it because you asked me to. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, and you know, nobody that works on this show gets paid for anything. It's all a labor of love. We all do it free. And that's fine. And that's just how this works. But if there was anybody I could reach out to to get some kind of help like that, it would be Hillary Howard. We've known each other Aww. since we were kids, basically. It's almost. Um, started off in journalism very, very young. Still very young. She is, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, no, right. You've aged and I haven't. I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, but um, we've had a couple of moments in our lives where our careers have intersected. It's just been strange how that's happened. I mean, it was years ago. uh, And then there was this this connection at uh, one of the TV stations here in Washington. And then here at WTOP, where this podcast is produced. But I'm just so thankful and grateful to have Hillary with us today. Welcome, Hillary. Thank you, JJ. And I loved working with you in Norfolk, Virginia. We had so much fun down there. It was a blast. We worked hard and played hard. Yes. And then it was Channel 5 where we worked together. Yes. And then now here. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we've got some work to do today. A few weeks ago, I guess maybe a few months ago now, a couple months ago now, we were talking one day um, in the hallway uh, just about life. Something had happened, and, you know, periodically over the years that we've worked together, we will share some thoughts about some things that are going on, and you asked me this question. <laughs> and, you, you know, you, you asked me this question, and I, for some reason I ended up talking about loneliness. Remember that? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. And you asked me to come on the show, and when we discussed topics, you raised the issue of loneliness. And it was really interesting because as I pondered it, JJ, it, it kind of took my breath away. You know, the, the profound idea of loneliness among other people, whether it's in the workplace or your community, you know, to feel like you're another, the other and by being the other, so marginalized as to feel as if you're invisible. I don't think a lot of people often consider that and the impact it, it creates. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, when you have a confluence of these things in your personal life, your community, your professional life, the greater society, when, they, when somehow you find yourself at the center of so many things all at once, it, it can leave you in a situation if you actually act on either your impulses or what you believe you should do to engage either personally in your community, professionally, and in greater society. It can put you in a situation, believe it or not, where even though you're engaged with people and you're engaged with situations every single day, you can still end up very lonely. And that's where I found myself. It's so interesting because I think I told you this. I can't give you exact examples. Oftentimes in my life, big things happen or maybe the daily indignities of you know, being a woman or you know maybe a little anti-Semitic, whatever it is. And I, I sort of forget the actual incidents because they happened with some frequency. But I remember how they made me feel. And I know that feeling of loneliness and, and particularly when you feel marginalized uh, in a crowd, in a group of people. And if it happens professionally, the self-doubt that it starts to, you know, create for you. Yeah. And, and that that's really um, that's very impactful. And, and the consequences yeah. can be debilitating. Yeah. Let me try to unpack a couple of things here, which I think explain the reason for my loneliness. And I'll just start back with. May of 2020, there was a situation that took place personally in my neighborhood that was just a really, really tragic situation. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of worry by neighbors and people didn't know what to do. So, you know, I've... I felt the same thing they felt, so I felt like I needed to try to do something to help the neighborhood. So I did, and I started to do what I could do. Um, Then, a couple of weeks later, there was George Floyd's death. And I can recall sitting at the desk in my office watching the video, and (laughs) I was crying. I mean, Mm -hmm. big grown man crying. But you know what? I'm proud of those tears because George Floyd died that day, but I was born again that day, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. and um, I was infused with 
energy to, to do something, to do what I could do. And, and that was, that, that's where this program started. That's when you got that phone call from me saying, can you do me, help me with something. Since then, there has been this, this steady stream of daily events, you know, being a national security correspondent, doing all that stuff, just covering the ridiculous things that have taken place in this country since last year's election, the January 6th thing, Russian disinformation, just the daily, just the daily activities. You know, how does this add up to loneliness? Well, it's because I think I've just been involved in so many things that I have simply uh, established that I'm okay doing all this stuff and maybe not sharing what has been going on uh, underneath it all, how this has all impacted me, but also to getting hate mail, which has increased probably tenfold. I mean, I've always gotten it, but certainly since the colors program started, it's gotten a lot worse. So, I mean, it makes you doubt yourself. It makes you at some moments not like yourself very much. It makes you want to go away. Sometimes it, it makes you not, want to be seen. I mean, all these things kind of add up to a very negative thing sometimes if you let them. And I kind of did for a while, but you know, uh, each day I climb out of that hole and there's a little spark somewhere in me that says, keep going, keep doing this, keep working at it. But that loneliness just kind of lingers there. You know, I mentioned how debilitating that can be. And, um, I would imagine that it can also start to feed insecurities and all sorts of you know, self-flagellation, right? Mm -hmm. Even though you know you're good at what you do, even though you know what kind of person you are, to be surrounded by people who always suggest that you don't really takes a toll on you. And and there are two ways that can go, right? Yeah. Either you can submit to that and allow yourself to fall, or you can just look deep, find your resources and think, well, well screw you. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to exactly. do what I need to do, and I'm going to do it well, despite you. Has that happened to you? Every single day. Every single day. I mean, you know, it's no secret. I've been at this for 30 years. And the very first job I got in Washington, the boss, the former boss, I should say, to be honest about it, walked in, saw me. I was the only African-American in the room. And he said, you know, JJ, you're only here because you're black. Oh. I mean, he's a very well-liked guy who's no longer with us. And I don't like speaking ill of anyone, let alone the dead. But that moment was a moment that haunted me for years. George Floyd, when I said I was reborn, when George Floyd died, the ghost of that day came back to me. But instead of reacting that day when, when, that, when that ghost came back, the, the way I reacted when it happened, which was to kind of just look around the room and just kind of laugh it off like everybody else who was around me did and some people actually started use that to, to make black jokes for years um, and thought it was okay because this figure had said it but on this day when George Floyd died I realized this is this is it this is not going to happen again and I'm going to deal with this and I'm going to help anybody else who needs to deal with it deal with it and do you find that doing colors uh, is more than a public service, because it is. But do you find it offers you a way to sort of heal? No doubt. Absolutely no doubt. Chris Corr, when he was on his program, used to ask me questions 
um, deep probing questions that nobody else would dare ask. But that's Chris, you know, you know, Chris, Chris and I have known each other since the Rodney King situation in Los Angeles back in the 90s. And, you know, we had a radio show then where he would ask these deep probing questions that had to do with understanding race and racism, et cetera. Uh, And um, it was therapeutic then. It's cathartic now as well. So there is a healing element to this program for me. And some of the people who've actually been on it have said the same thing over time. This is this this was a healing experience. And I'm not in the business of trying to <laughs> to heal people. I'm trying to inf- I'm trying to inform them um as a journalist and you know working at the intersection of race and national security is a really challenging place because there are many people in national security for years have told me you're not a good national security correspondent first of all because you know you're not the prototype. Secondly, <laughs> mm. uh, secondly um you know, you just don't come from the pedigree, you know, not a Harvard type rad. You know, I went to a, an HBCU, which I'm very proud of, Hampton University. Uh, and you just are you working at a radio station? I mean, come on. Some of them say, how are you going to do that? You don't work for The New York Times or Washington Post. But I do credit the folks here at WTOP for allowing me to grow, you know, yeah. and uh, folks like you who along the way have helped me to grow. It's been a very interesting situation. Well, I've always got your back, JJ. Thank you. I'll tell you something, though, uh, about reporters who become very territorial and dismissive of others who haven't done it the way they did it. My opinion, professionally. And it's welcome. I, I think that, you know, we owe it to newbies to take them under our wing. You know, even 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 when somebody works for the competition as a local reporter, because I used to be in the field. I mean, I, I know reporters who were so kind to 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 new reporters who came into the field, helping them out. I mean, they're not going to they're not going to give them, you know, some exclusive story. You know, but, but you're out uh, uh, covering a murder. You know, they're going to tell you, oh, that's the PIO. Oh, that's the person over there. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a camaraderie in the field among many people, and it's not always as competitive as folks as folks think. Yeah, and that's beautiful. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful because you make first of all, it's kind to the other person, but it's good for your own soul, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Look, you're you know a part of the reason, folks, why she's on this 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 program is because of that beauty, because of her ability to do that. And to um, bring that to the fore, you know, just a quick example about what you're talking about. I recall the first time I went to Kandahar in Afghanistan, there was a veteran reporter that I worked with at the Pentagon whom I ran into. I ran into that person at the old Kandahar airport, which was so fascinating to look at because it was an old CIA base. Huh. I mean, and many of the things that I'd read about and pictures I'd seen in books, I saw there. Lo and behold, this reporter was there. We ran into each other. We ran into each other and that reporter said, what the are you doing here? Hmm. I mean. (laughs) Wow. So I just kind of said, nice to see you, too. (laughs) Wow. And jumped on a plane and went back to Kabul or wherever we were going that day. But I never forgot that. 
and I realized exactly what you said. This person who's a lot older than I, I said, you know, if, she, if, if that person had said something different to me, something encouraging, that person would, they, I would have walked through a wall of fire for that person. Right. But as a result of that day, I just have never been able to do that. You know, not only that, but to hear something positive when you walk into a situation where immediately you're going to feel insecure because you haven't done it before. Yeah. If somebody says something kind, what that does to your own sense of self-esteem and the, the, the sense that you're going to make it is huge. I mean, you can't even you can't even quite describe that inner feeling of, OK, I feel like I, I can belong here. That's so powerful. Yeah. But by but by saying what was said, that that, you know, knocks your feet out from under you on day one. Yeah. But you know what, Hillary, this isn't this isn't this isn't all about me. We're talking with my colleague Hillary Howard, who has been a television anchor here in Washington. She's been a weathercaster, a health reporter. She's an anchor here at WTOP News. And she's also the host of It's Academic, a program on NBC Washington, which champions the academic skills of young people. We're going to hear a very intense story from Hillary. You want to be a... You think I'm going to hire you? This is what he said to me. Oh, my gosh. So, as you may imagine... My insides were melting. <laughs> like every organ heated up to 250 degrees and were melting into this pool that sat in my stomach and started choking in my throat. Hmm. That's coming up when we continue on Colors right after this. You're listening to Colors. My name is Jose Pereira. As an immigrant from Portugal, I owe a lot to this country, of which I became a citizen back in 2001. I cannot recall any incident where I felt discriminated against that I'm aware of. My only encounters with police have been related to driving offenses, mostly speeding. Even though the thought of blue lights and sirens behind you can be terrifying, my first thought always has been, how much is this going to cost me? And I never felt fearful for my life. Up until a few years ago, I really thought that this was the same experience for everyone out there. Having married a strong black woman opened up my eyes to a different way of thinking. We have a long way to go, and I must admit that a few years ago when the Black Lives Matter movement started, I used to say, all lives matter. Now, I understand the need to say, black lives matter at this time, since white lives have always mattered. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Now back to our conversation with Hillary Howard. Hillary, you were talking to me about struggles I've gone through and others, but you've gone through some traumatic things too. And a part of what we want to do here is to let you tell us how you made it through those situations. How did you get up, pick yourself up, move on? I know that there have been some traumatic things that have happened to you, knowing you all this time. But you walk into the newsroom every single day that God sends, and you've got this smile on your face, and sometimes you're singing. Sometimes you have to say, okay, Hillary. (laughs) Not that anybody does that. Well, I do default to happy, but it doesn't mean I don't have this deep well of, you know. No, but it's, it's, it's exactly what makes the world go round. And this is, you know, this is the thing about you, you know, that is so mysterious to me in that how you managed, after all you've been through, to do this. 
And I wish you would share something with us about that. Well, you know, first of all, all of us have walked through fire, right? I mean, it's part of the human experience. So it's not as if I have gone through something extraordinary that others haven't gone through in some way or another. Similarly with you, we just all have different you know, varieties of it. Um, what helps you get through, though? I mean, yeah, I mean, we want to recognize that, you know, we're not unique in, 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 in going through really hard things. And, you know, I would say the things I've been through are nothing compared to things other people have gone through, you know, that yeah. are much, much worse. Well, we um, are very fortunate yeah. humans. But, but um, do you have a, do you, do you have a, do you have a, a, a process? Um, I mean, so you've been through racial issues before, you know, the, the anti-Semitic thing, which you've sort of I have. minimized, uh, and we don't want to minimize that here. I mean, colors is not about just things that happen to a black man or a, uh, a Latina woman or uh, an Asian other, you know, a person who considers themselves an LGBTQ plus person. It's not about all of just a certain subset of things. It's about all of us. And so you've been through a lot of things too. I've definitely experienced um, anti-Semitism in the field. And one day it was so profound, like I had to walk away. Um, It was just, it was kind of too much for me. But on an almost daily basis, from the time I was still in college and working in the industry, you know, I had to deal with sexism always, particularly because I'm, I'm a little older, right? I'm not quite sure what it's like for younger women now. Sometimes I'd love to know. I just want to sit down and say, so tell me, <laughs> is it any different? <laughs> Do you have to go through this indignity? But that, that was hard. And I'll tell you one kind of funny story. I was working in a place, a long defunct radio network called RKO Radio Networks, and I was still in college. And um, I probably learned more from those folks of talented people than maybe any other group of people in my career. Really helped shape how, um, how I wanted to tell my stories, how I would write, you know, conversationally. Mm-hmm which I always kind of did, but man, they, they just, they were so good. I, I never forgot what I learned from them. Anyway, we were in the same building as WOR in New York City. So there was an opening for a reporter and I was graduating college. You know, I was young, I was naive, and maybe I was a little stupid. So I decided I was going to, I was going to apply for this reporter job because of course I could do it. <laughs> That's how I thought. I, had, I didn't think anything was impossible. So I get an interview and I walk upstairs. I still I can't remember the guy's name. It could probably come to me if I thought about it, but I know exactly what he looked like, exactly what he was wearing. You know, this white button up shirt. He had like uh, medium colored brown hair with a mustache and he wore glasses um, sitting behind his desk and he welcomes me in and he said, so, you know, why do you want to be a production assistant? And I said, oh, well, I'm not I'm not applying for the production assistant job. I'm, I'm applying for the reporter job. And he looked at me with absolute disgust on his face. And I'm not minimizing this, like disgust. And he says, and I'm going to back away from the mic because it was loud. He's like, who do you think you are to come in here and tell me you want to be a reporter? You want to be a You think I'm going to hire you? This is what he said to me. Oh, my gosh. So as you may imagine, 
my insides were melting. <laughs> like every organ heated up to 250 degrees and were melting into this pool that sat in my stomach and started choking in my throat. Hmm. And I, I had no choice. I knew I had to buck up. And I took a deep breath. And even though I wanted to die, I looked him in the eye and I smiled and I said, well, I would have been a fool had I not even tried for this. And and he looked at me and I don't even know what he said. And I was, you know, unceremoniously kind of ushered out. Um, But, you know, I've thought about that periodically over the years. But recently, particularly during the Me Too movement, I've, I've thought about that incident a lot. And there's nothing, nothing that can make me believe anything other than this. Had I been a young man, that would have gone entirely differently. Yes. Even even if he thought I was stupid, you know, like what you're you're applying for the reporter, he would have patted his hand on my back and said, "Ha ha, good for trying. That's going to get you somewhere. Don't lose that streak." You know, after you had a couple of jobs, call me. Yeah. It, it would have been I, I, nothing could make me believe that conversation uh, wouldn't have been that one with a guy. That. That individual had a problem with himself. <laughs> he had a problem with, with me, I can tell you that. Well, no, the, the, the real problem was with himself. He was insecure, and he was also extremely ignorant. I mean, and the one thing about people who um, make a mark in life is a lot of them go through something like that, but a lot of them have... What's necessary to survive something like that? Or he did to think he didn't think that I should do that as a woman. You know, maybe it was the way he was brought. I don't know. It was a different time. Yeah. He he, he thought he thought I had a, a hell of a lot of nerve to go up to him, the news director of WOR, and have the audacity to think that I could even apply for this job. Yeah. That well. that that it, it may have in fact been fueled by the idea. That he didn't think it was my place. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, but you know what? Again, I go back to this, Hillary. Um, he didn't know that he was in the presence of royalty. <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't he, go that far. <laughs> well, I, I did. I mean, I mean that, and I said that to say this. He had a problem with himself, and you could have been Princess Diana, you know? No, no, he would not have done that to Princess Diana, at least while she was a princess before. That's the point that I'm making. You don't know. You don't know who you're in front of. Right. And you can't treat people that way, regardless of whether you know them or not. You know, so my, my point is he had no clue who you would become. All he could see at the moment was his authority and who he was and his ability to make you try to make you feel small. Yeah. This is a podcast, so I guess I can say he was just an asshole, JJ. Yes. Yeah. And I can, on this podcast, agree. I won't say that, but I'll agree. <laughs> but let me just say this, and I, I want to shift over to another piece of your story. Our, our, the RKO Radio Network, I wanted to work there when I was, you know, really in college. Yeah. There is a station in New York called KISS FM, mm-hmm. WRKS. And there is a guy by the name of Shet Pettibone that worked there who, uh, along with Tony Humphreys, used to do something called the Kiss Master Mixes. And I, I was a DJ, by the way. Originally. Really? Yeah. I mean, I was. I didn't a, know that. Yeah, that's where I started. I always wanted to go to Kiss FM in New York. Barry Mayo was the um, production 
manager, the, the program director there, I'm sorry. Never happened because I ended up in Washington and the rest is history. But that's just a little connection. RKO was where I wanted to go. Hmm, fascinating. I'm glad I didn't go. <laughs> but, you know, back to now, back to today, there have been so many things that have taken place in the last year that have opened so many doors for me and for others. And one of the things that has been so profound for me is the understanding that I really had a lot of people wrong. I had gotten them wrong. People that I thought were friends, turns out not not so much, and people that I just never really connected with, never really thought much about You know what they would think if a situation like George Floyd came up turned out to be real allies. Mm -hmm. I mean, so a lot of things have changed in this last year for me. And uh, I can't think of any bigger example than the Colors podcast, because once once we started doing it, some of the people that I used to engage with stopped. Some of the people that I'd never engaged with started. And. It just let me understand that no matter what takes place, you have people out there that they're not going to go to the point of, you know, being a true, you know, like a true friend or whatever. I don't know how to say this. They're not going to go so far as to say, I've got your back or, or walk through a wall of anything for you, but they let you know that they understand where you are. And that's that helps with this loneliness piece. Yeah. It really does. Um, because the disappointment of finding out that people that you really cared about and thought about aren't who they seem to be, you know, that's a blow. But there are others who have stepped in, in the gap, as I call it, and fill that space, fill that void. And that helps me each day to continue to do this work, um, because I know that there are other people out there, Hillary, that are much worse off. When I say worse off, I mean people that are hurting, who need a place, who need a voice. And we can try to do that here. Well, there's a tremendous amount of suffering all around us. You know, the obvious suffering of people, people who we report on. And then there's the personal sufferings we don't see, kind of what you're alluding to. Yeah. And um, compassion and empathy go a really long way. Just a little bit of compassion. Yeah. You know, a little embrace of people. It, uh, the value is, um, it's, it, there's no price on it. That's tremendous. You know what? I'm so glad we decided to do this. Hey, I want to read a poem. Poetry and singing. Where does it stop <laughs> with you, man? It's not my poem. Oh, it's, oh, okay. But it's still, not my poem. I'm sure. Now, see, a part of the reason, folks, why she does the voice of colors is because she's got a voice. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. It was my mother and father. I'm sure. I'm sure she's going to drop this poem with <clears throat> that voice. So please do, Hillary. Okay. And forgive me for 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 joking here, but um, I'm sure this is something pretty important and it's serious. It's great. And um, when I knew that we would be doing this today, I, I had just read this poem, and I thought I'm going to read it. It's relevant to everything we've been talking about. The Man Who Thinks He Can by Walter D. Wintle. If you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can't, it is almost certain that you won't. If you think you'll lose, you're lost. 
For out of the world we find, success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in the state of mind. If you think you are outclassed, you are. You've got to think high to rise. You've got to be sure of yourself before you can ever win a prize. Life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man. But soon or late, the man who wins is a man who thinks he can. Well, so you're telling me and you're telling us we got a chance if we keep doing this. Got to believe in yourself or there's nothing. Wow. Hillary, this poem is very provocative, very moving. But I have to wonder what the person that wrote it went through Mm. to come up with that. And I'm certain that you sensed something when you saw it. And even more so when you decided this would be apropos for, for this program. Just tell me real quick what this means to you. We all have a narrator in our heads. Sadly, mine is incessant. I've had to learn how to shut it up. <laughs> or or um, just accept it and that it's part of me and ask it to be quiet for a while. And... Those are the voices of self-doubt, of insecurity, of seeing something in someone's face that you read as, uh, you know, that, that, that they're reading you, that they're making an assumption about you, a, ca- a characterization. Judging. They're judging. And in the end, we can't worry about how the world sees us or how we think the world sees us. We have to live as our authentic selves. And we have to know, know, we have to know professionally um, what our value is and believe it. Because even if you know your value, and even if you're really good at what you do, if you doubt yourself, you're going to continue to stumble. And then you continue to beat yourself up and it becomes a really vicious cycle that can be hard to recover from, despite your abilities. Mm-hmm. So in the end, you got to know what you bring to the table. you got to believe it and screw everybody else, right? Because uh, if you're not bringing it to the table, you're not going to keep your job. So don't believe all of the stuff that people tell you. If there's criticism, smile, kind of deconstruct it, see if there's anything there for you. And if there's not, just be off. I mean, I really believe in being who you are and believing in yourself. That's it. That's all you got. And that can actually help deal with that loneliness that you might feel. Yeah. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And I'm Hillary Howard. I'm not. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. The challenges facing Afghans being relocated to the U.S., forced to leave loved ones behind. It's my wife. It's my love. I can't leave her to be brutally punished with those heinous animals. Mm -hmm. I cannot leave her or or I cannot see her 
being in that situation. So means that I would do, I would put my life at risk, at danger. I don't care about my life. I care about her. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. It's time to go. And as we do, we want to say thank you to Mike Chikaitis, Joel Oxley, Julia Ziegler, Mary DePompa, Matt Small, the Reverend John Petty, Nakib, and Najib, Ahmad Siddiqui, No One Left Behind, Peggy Byard, Anjali Chong, Joby Warwick, Jeru Bande, Audrey Henson, College to Congress, the Montgomery County Police in Maryland, Gina Bazemore, the WTOP social team, and Brett Snyder. Thanks to Shelby Steele, Thedford Collins, Dorothy Gilliam, and for the music, Thanks to Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, a gigantic thank you to you for taking time to listen to us. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on the brand new Podcast DC app. And if you have any questions or comments or show suggestions or any thoughts about the show, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.